Section 6 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1861-1868. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. State of the Union Address, Andrew Johnson, December 4, 1865, Part 2. The report of the Secretary of the Interior explains the condition of the public lands, the transactions of the Patent Office and the Pension Bureau, the management of our Indian affairs, the progress made in the construction of the Pacific Railroad, and furnishes information in reference to matters of local interest in the District of Columbia. It also presents evidence of the successful operation of the Homestead Act, under the provisions of which 1,160,533 acres of the public lands were entered during the last fiscal year, more than one-fourth of the whole number of acres sold or otherwise disposed of during that period. It is estimated that the receipts derived from this source are sufficient to cover the expenses incident to the survey and disposal of the lands entered under this act, and that payments in cash to the extent of from 40 to 50 percent will be made by settlers who may thus at any time acquire title before the expiration of the period at which it would otherwise vest. The homestead policy was established only after long and earnest resistance. Experience proves its wisdom. The lands in the hands of industrious settlers whose labor creates wealth and contributes to the public resources are worth more to the United States than if they had been reserved as a solitude for future purchases. The lamentable events of the last four years and the sacrifices made by the gallant men of our Army and Navy have swelled the records of the Pension Bureau to an unprecedented extent. On the 30th day of June last, the total number of pensioners was 85,986, requiring for their annual pay exclusive of expenses the sum of 823000 $445. The number of applications that have been allowed since that date will require a large increase of this amount for the next fiscal year. This means for the payment of the stipends due under existing laws to our disabled soldiers and sailors and to the families of such as have perished in the service of the country will no doubt be cheerfully and promptly granted. A grateful people will not hesitate to sanction any measures having for their object the relief of soldiers mutilated and families made fatherless in the efforts to preserve our national existence. The report of the Postmaster General presents an encouraging exhibit of the operations of the Post Office Department during the year. The revenues of the past year from the loyal states alone exceed the maximum annual receipts from all the states previous to the rebellion in the sum of $6,038,091, and 
and the annual average increase of revenue during the last four years compared with the revenue of the four years immediately preceding the rebellion was $3,533,845. The revenues of the last fiscal year amounted to $14,556,158 and the expenditures to $13,694,728 leaving a surplus of receipts over expenditures of $861,430. Progress has been made in restoring the postal service in the southern states. The views presented by the Postmaster General against the policy of granting subsidies to the ocean mail steamship lines upon established routes and in favor of continuing the present system which limits the compensation for ocean service to the postage earnings are recommended to the careful consideration of congress it appears from the report of the secretary of the navy that while at the commencement of the present year there were in commission five hundred and thirty vessels of all classes and descriptions armed with 3,000 guns and manned by 51,000 men, the number of vessels at present in commission is 117, with 830 guns and 12,128 men. By this prompt reduction of the naval forces, the expenses of the government have been largely diminished, and a number of vessels purchased for naval purposes from the merchant marine, have been returned to the peaceful pursuits of commerce. Since the suppression of active hostilities, our foreign squadrons have been re-established, and consist of vessels much more efficient than those employed on similar service previous to the rebellion. The suggestion of the enlargement of the navy yards, and especially for the establishment of one in fresh water for ironclad vessels, is deserving of consideration, as is also the recommendation for a different location and more ample grounds for the Naval Academy. In the report of the Secretary of War, a general summary is given of the military campaigns of 1864 and 1865 ending in the suppression of armed resistance to the national authority in the insurgent states. The operations of the general administrative bureaus of the War Department during the past year are detailed, and an estimate made of the appropriations that will be required for military purposes in the fiscal year commencing the first day of July, 1866. The National Military Force, on the 1st of May, 1865, numbered 1,516,000 men. It is proposed to reduce the military establishment to a peace footing, comprehending 50,000 troops of all arms, organized so as to admit of an enlargement by filling up the ranks to 82,600, if the circumstances of the country should require an augmentation of the army. The volunteer force has already been reduced by the discharge from service of over 800,000 troops, and the department is proceeding rapidly 
in the work of further reduction. The war estimates are reduced from $516,240,131 to $33,814,461, which amount, in the opinion of the Department, is adequate for a peace establishment. The measures of retrenchment in each bureau and branch of the service exhibit a diligent economy worthy of commendation. Reference is also made in the report to the necessity of providing for a uniform militia system and to the propriety of making suitable provision for wounded and disabled officers and soldiers. The revenue system of the country is a subject of vital interest to its honor and prosperity and should command the earnest consideration of Congress. The Secretary of the Treasury will lay before you a full and detailed report of the receipts and disbursements of the last fiscal year, of the first quarter of the present fiscal year, of the probable receipts and expenditures for the other three quarters, and the estimates for the year following the 30th of June, 1866. I might content myself with a reference to that report, in which you will find all the information required for your deliberations and decision. But the paramount importance of the subject so presses itself on my own mind that I cannot but lay before you my views of the measures which are required for the good character, and I might also say for the existence, of this people. The life of a republic lies certainly in the energy virtue, and intelligence of its citizens. But it is equally true that a good revenue system is the life of an organized government. I meet you at a time when the nation has voluntarily burdened itself with a debt unprecedented in our annals. Vast as is its amount, it fades away into nothing when compared with the countless blessings that will be conferred upon our country and upon man by the preservation of this nation's life. Now, on the first occasion of the meeting of Congress since the return of peace, it is of the utmost importance to inaugurate a just policy, which shall at once be put in motion and which shall commend itself to those who come after us for its continuance. We must aim at nothing less than the complete effacement of the financial evils that necessarily followed a state of civil war. We must endeavor to apply the earliest remedy to the deranged state of the currency and not shrink from devising a policy which, without being oppressive to the people, shall immediately begin to effect a reduction of the debt, and if persisted in, discharge it fully within a definitely fixed number of years. It is our first duty to prepare in earnest for our recovery from the ever-increasing evils of an irredeemable currency without a sudden revulsion, and yet without untimely procrastination. For that end, we must each, in our respective positions, 
prepare the way. I hold it the duty of the executive to insist upon frugality in the expenditures, and a sparing economy is itself a great national resource. Of the banks to which authority has been given to issue notes secured by bonds of the United States, we may require the greatest moderation and prudence, and the law must be rigidly enforced when its limits are exceeded. We may, each one of us, counsel our active and enterprising countrymen to be consistently on their guard, to liquidate debts contracted in a paper currency, and by conducting business as nearly as possible on a system of cash payments or short credits, to hold themselves prepared to return to the standard of gold and silver. To aid our fellow citizens in the prudent management of their monetary affairs, the duty devolves on us to diminish by law the amount of paper money now in circulation. Five years ago, the banknote circulation of the country amounted to not much more than 200 millions. Now the circulation, bank and national, exceeds 700 millions. The simple statement of the fact recommends more strongly than any words of mine can do the necessity for our restraining this expansion. The gradual reduction of the currency is the only measure that can save the business of the country from disastrous calamities, and this can be almost imperceptibly accomplished by gradually funding the national circulation in securities that may be made redeemable at the pleasure of the government. Our debt is doubly secure, first in the actual wealth, and still greater undeveloped resources of the country, and next in the character of our institutions. The most intelligent observers among political economists have not failed to remark that the public debt of a country is safe in proportion as its people are free that the debt of a republic is the safest of all. Our history confirms and establishes the theory, and is, I firmly believe, destined to give it a still more signal illustration. The secret of this superiority springs not merely from the fact that in a republic the national obligations are distributed more widely through countless numbers in all classes of society, it has its root in the character of our laws. Here, all men contribute to the public welfare and bear this fair share of the public burdens. During the war, under the impulses of patriotism, the men of the great body of the people, without regard to their own comparative want of wealth, thronged to our armies and filled our fleets of war and held themselves ready to offer their lives for the public good. Now in their turn, the property and income of the country should bear their just proportion of the burden of taxation, while in our impost system, through means of which increased vitality is incidentally imparted to all the industrial interests of the nation, the duties should be so adjusted as to fall most heavily on articles of luxury leaving the necessaries of life as free from taxation as the absolute wants of the government economically administered will justify. 
No favored class should demand freedom from assessment, and the taxes should be so distributed as not to fall unduly on the poor, but rather on the accumulated wealth of the country. We should look at the national debt just as it is, not as a national blessing, but as a heavy burden on the industry of the country to be discharged without unnecessary delay. It is estimated by the Secretary of the Treasury that the expenditures for the fiscal year ending the 30th of June 1866 will exceed the receipts $112,194,947. It is gratifying, however, to state that it is also estimated that the revenue for the year ending the 30th of June 1867 will exceed the expenditures in the sum of $111,682,818. This amount, or so much as may be deemed sufficient for the purpose, may be applied to the reduction of the public debt, which on the 31st day of October 1865 was $2,000,000. Seven hundred and forty million eight hundred and fifty four thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars. Every reduction will diminish the total amount of interest to be paid and so enlarge the means of still further reductions until the whole shall be liquidated. And this, as will be seen from the estimates of the Secretary of the Treasury, may be accomplished by annual payments even within a period not exceeding 30 years. I have faith that we shall do all this within a reasonable time, that as we have amazed the world by the suppression of a civil war which was thought to be beyond the control of any government, so we shall equally show the superiority of our institutions by the prompt and faithful discharge of our national obligations. The Department of Agriculture, under its present direction, is accomplishing much in developing and utilizing the vast agricultural capabilities of the country, and for information respecting the details of its management, reference is made to the annual report of the Commissioner. I have dwelt thus fully on our domestic affairs because of their transcendent importance. Under any circumstances, our great extent of territory and variety of climate, producing almost everything that is necessary for the wants and even the comforts of man, make us singularly independent of the varying policy of foreign powers, and protect us against every temptation to entangling alliances, while at the present moment the re-establishment of harmony and the strength that comes from harmony will be our best security against nations who feel power and forget right. For myself, it has been and it will be my constant aim to promote peace and amity with all foreign nations and powers, and I have every reason to believe that they all, without exception, are animated by the same disposition. Our relations with the Emperor of China 
so recent in their origin, are most friendly. Our commerce with his dominions is receiving new developments, and it is very pleasing to find that the government of that great empire manifests satisfaction with our policy and reposes just confidence in the fairness which marks our intercourse. The unbroken harmony between the United States and the Emperor of Russia is receiving a new support from an enterprise designed to carry telegraphic lines across the continent of Asia, through his dominions, and so to connect us with all Europe by a new channel of intercourse. Our commerce with South America is about to receive encouragement by a direct line of mail steamships to the rising empire of Brazil. The distinguished party of men of science, who have recently left our country to make a scientific exploration of the natural history and rivers and mountain ranges of that region, have received from the emperor that generous welcome which was to have been expected from his constant friendship for the United States and his well-known zeal in promoting the advancement of knowledge. A hope is entertained that our commerce with the rich and populous countries that border the Mediterranean Sea may be largely increased. Nothing will be wanting on the part of this government to extend the protection of our flag over the enterprise of our fellow citizens. We receive from the powers in that region assurances of goodwill, and it is worthy of note that a special envoy has brought us messages of condolence on the death of our late chief magistrate from the Bay of Tunis, whose rule includes the old dominions of Carthage on the African coast. Our domestic contest, now happily ended, has left some traces in our relations with one at least of the great maritime powers. The formal accordance of belligerent rights to the insurgent states was unprecedented and has not been justified by the issue. But in the systems of neutrality pursued by the powers which made that concession, there was a marked difference. The materials of war for the insurgent states were furnished, in a great measure, from the workshops of Great Britain and British ships, manned by British subjects, and prepared for receiving British armaments, sallied from the ports of Great Britain to make war on American commerce under the shelter of a commission from the insurgent states. These ships, having once escaped from British ports, ever afterwards entered them in every part of the world to refit, and so to renew their depredations. The consequences of this conduct were most disastrous to the states then in rebellion, increasing their desolation and misery by the prolongation of our civil contest. It had, moreover, the effect, to great extent, to drive the American flag from the sea and to transfer much of our shipping and our commerce to the very power 
whose subjects had created the necessity for such a change. These events took place before I was called to the administration of the government. The sincere desire for peace by which I am animated led me to approve the proposal already made to submit the question which had thus arisen between the countries to arbitration. These questions are of such moment that they must have commanded the attention of the great powers and are so interwoven with the peace and interests of every one of them as to have ensured an impartial decision. I regret to inform you that Great Britain declined the arbitrament, but on the other hand invited us to the formation of a joint commission to settle mutual claims between the two countries from which those for the depredations before mentioned should be excluded. The proposition in that very unsatisfactory form has been declined. The United States did not present the subject as an impeachment of the good faith of a power which was professing the most friendly dispositions, but as involving questions of public law of which the settlement is essential to the peace of nations, and though pecuniary reparation to the injured citizens would have followed incidentally on a decision against Great Britain, such compensation was not their primary object. They had a higher motive, and it was in the interests of peace and justice to establish important principles of international law. The correspondence will be placed before you. The ground on which the British minister rests his justification is substantially that the municipal law of a nation and the domestic interpretations of that law are the measure of its duty as a neutral, and I feel bound to declare my opinion before you and before the world that that justification cannot be sustained before the tribunal of nations. At the same time, I do not advise to any present attempt at redress by acts of legislation. For the future, friendship between the two countries must rest on the basis of mutual justice. From the moment of the establishment of our free constitution, the civilized world has been convulsed by revolutions in the interests of democracy or of monarchy. But through all those revolutions the United States have wisely and firmly refused to become propagandists of republicanism. It is the only government suited to our condition, but we have never sought to impose it on others, and we have consistently followed the advice of Washington to recommend it only by the careful preservation and prudent use of the blessing. During all the intervening period, the policy of European powers and of the United States has on the whole been harmonious. Twice, indeed, rumors of the invasion of some parts of America in the interest of monarchy have prevailed. Twice, my predecessors have had on occasion to announce the views of this nation in respect to such interference. On both occasions, the remonstrance of the United States was respected from a deep conviction on the part of European governments 
that the system of non-interference and mutual abstinence from propagandism was the true rule for the two hemispheres. Since those times, we have advanced in wealth and power, but we retain the same purpose to leave the nations of Europe to choose their own dynasties and form their own systems of government. This consistent moderation may justly demand a corresponding moderation. We should regard it as a great calamity to ourselves, to the cause of good government, and to the peace of the world should any European power challenge the American people, as it were, to the defense of republicanism against foreign interference. We cannot foresee and are unwilling to consider what opportunities might present themselves, what combinations might offer to protect ourselves against designs inimical to our form of government. The United States desire to act in the future as they have ever acted heretofore. They never will be driven from that course but by the aggression of European powers, and we rely on the wisdom and justice of those powers to respect the system of non-interference, which has so long been sanctioned by time, and which by its good results has approved itself to both continents. The correspondence between the United States and France in reference to questions which have become subjects of discussion between the two governments, will at a proper time be laid before Congress. When on the organization of our government under the Constitution, the President of the United States delivered his inaugural address to the two houses of Congress, he said to them, and through them to the country, and to mankind, that the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the republican model of government are justly considered, perhaps as deeply as finally, staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. And the House of Representatives answered Washington by the voice of Madison, We adore the invisible hand which has led the American people through so many difficulties, to cherish a conscious responsibility for the destiny of republican liberty. More than seventy-six years have glided away since these words were spoken. The United States have passed through severer trials than were foreseen. And now, at this new epoch in our existence as one nation, with our union purified, by sorrows, and strengthened by conflict, and established by the virtue of the people, the greatness of the occasion invites us once more to repeat with solemnity the pledges of our fathers, to hold ourselves answerable before our fellow men for the success of the republican form of government. Experience has proved its sufficiency in peace and in war. It has vindicated its authority through dangers and afflictions and sudden and terrible emergencies which would have crushed any system 
that had been less firmly fixed in the hearts of the people. At the inauguration of Washington, the foreign relations of the country were few, and its trade was repressed by hostile regulations. Now all the civilized nations of the globe welcome our commerce, and their governments profess towards us amity. Then our country felt its way hesitatingly along an untried path, with states so little bound together by rapid means of communication as to be hardly known to one another, and with historic traditions extending over very few years. Now intercourse between the states is swift and intimate. The experience of centuries has been crowded into a few generations, and has created an intense, indestructible nationality. Then our jurisdiction did not reach beyond the inconvenient boundaries of the territory which had achieved independence. Now through sessions of land, first colonized by Spain and France, the country has acquired a more complex character and has for its natural limits the chain of lakes, the Gulf of Mexico, and on the east and the west the two great oceans. Other nations were wasted by civil wars for ages before they could establish for themselves the necessary degree of unity. The latent conviction that our form of government is the best ever known to the world has enabled us to emerge from civil war within four years, with a complete vindication of the constitutional authority of the general government, and with our local liberties and state institutions unimpaired. The throngs of emigrants that crowd to our shores are witness of the confidence of all peoples in our permanence. Here is the great land of free labor, where industry is blessed with unexampled rewards, and the bread of the working man is sweetened by the consciousness that the cause of the country is his own cause, his own safety, his own dignity. Here, Everyone enjoys the free use of his faculties and the choice of activity as a natural right. Here, under the combined influence of a fruitful soil, genial climes, and happy institutions, population has increased fifteenfold within a century. Here, through the easy development of boundless resources, Wealth has increased with twofold greater rapidity than numbers, so that we have become secure against the financial vicissitudes of other countries, and, alike in business and in opinion, are self-centered and truly independent. Here, more and more care is given to provide education for everyone born on our soil. Here, religion released from political connection with the civil government, refuses to subserve the craft of statesmen and becomes in its independence the spiritual life of the people. Here, toleration is extended to every opinion, 
and the quiet certainty that truth needs only a fair field to secure the victory. Here, the human mind goes forth unshackled in the pursuit of science to collect stores of knowledge and acquire an ever-increasing mastery over the forces of nature. Here, the national domain is offered and held in millions of separate freeholds, so that our fellow citizens, beyond the occupants of any other part of the earth, constitute in reality a people. Here exists the democratic form of government, and that form of government by the confession of European statesmen gives a power of which no other form is capable because it incorporates every man with the state and arouses everything that belongs to the soul. Where in past history does a parallel exist to the public happiness which is in within the reach of the people of the United States? Where in any part of the globe can institutions be found so suited to their habits or so entitled to their love as their own free constitution? Every one of them, then, in whatever part of the land he has his home, must wish its perpetuity. Who of them will not now acknowledge, in the words of Washington, that every step by which the people of the United States have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency? Who will not join with me in the prayer that the invisible hand which has led us through the clouds that gloomed around our path, will so guide us onward to a perfect restoration of fraternal affection, that we may of this day be able to transmit our great inheritance of state governments in all their rights, of the general government in its whole constitutional vigor, to our posterity and they to theirs through countless generations. Andrew Johnson, December 4, 1865 End of Section 6